Hope you enjoy. Monkey, grassroots, anarchy, freeform. Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. Today, I'll replay a show from fall 2022 with artist Michelle Okadoner. Recently, Michelle Okadoner created a new design for Michigan's Athena Award medallion. The Athena Award, started in 1973, is bestowed on outstanding alumni who have distinguished themselves in professional and humanitarian endeavors. Last September, I was lucky to have the opportunity to speak with Michelle when she was in Ann Arbor to give a very special Penny W. Stamps anniversary lecture. First, you'll hear Michelle's bio, then you'll hear the show begin my first live show back in the studio since COVID. Thanks to Frank Yuli for engineering that very first show back in the studio after so long. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening, everybody. Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. And today I'm so, (laughs) I'm completely beside myself (laughs) because Michelle Oka Donor is here in the studio. Michelle, it's so good to see you. It's so nice to be back. I think I'm here all of 148 minutes, and look where I found myself. I just arrived. (laughs) The place to be. Thank you so much for fitting us in. It's been since 2016. That was our first Living Writers conversation. And you've been back and forth in Ann Arbor, and we've sort of missed each other, I think, a little bit. I've missed you. I should say that. Michelle Okadonor is an internationally renowned artist whose career spans six decades. Her work is fueled by a lifelong study and appreciation of the natural world from which she derives her formal vocabulary. The breadth of her artistic production encompasses sculpture, drawing, public art, functional objects, video, artist books, and costume and set design. She is well known for creating numerous permanent art installations throughout the United States, including flight at Reagan International Airport in Arlington, Virginia, Radiant Site at the Herald Square MTA Station, New York, and the Mile and Quarter Bronze and Toronto. Terrazzo Concourse. Am I saying Terrazzo? Right? Yes, is you it, said it the way that, I used to. Yes. <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> a walk on the beach mm-hmm. at Miami International Airport, seen by 40 million travelers annually. So, so many people. That's my favorite. I'm, but I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not biased at all, right, with our Florida connection here. 
Oka donor's work is found in collections around the world and also closer to home here at the Detroit Institute of Arts and the University of Michigan. Michelle Oka donor is here in Ann Arbor to give the talk Carrying Golden Threads as part of the 10th naming anniversary celebration of the Penny W. Stamp School of Art and Design. September 20th, 2022 marks 10 years since the naming of the school in honor of Penny W. Stamps for the gift her and her husband, Eero Stamps, made to support art and design education at the University of Michigan. Back to Michelle. Born and raised in Miami Beach, Michelle Oka Donor was made guardian of the city of Miami Beach's centennial banyan tree and represents Miami Beach as ambassador for arts and culture. In 2021, she maintains a home and studio in New York City. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so happy to be here. It's so nice to be home. I always feel home when I come to Ann Arbor. You had some formative years here with the undergrad and then your fine arts degree. Yes, well, um, they were formative years. I think for the nation also, it was a very special time. And the, they things were felt deeply. Music changed. The way we looked at the world changed, you know. So it was um, as well as an education that was uh, traditional. To see you, because you're back in town today for the Penny W. Stamps celebration of the 10th anniversary of the, the naming of the Penny Stamps as the Art and Design School. Correct. And they're kicking it off with a bang, I think. That's so sweet. She was a good friend, and um, actually, I met her under a banyan tree. N no. Yes. <laughs> I think we're in for an hour today, aren't we? <laughs> well, she was here in Ann Arbor when I was here, a year ahead of me in the old A&D building. So I must have passed her on the stairs because there was only one way to go to class. We all went up and down on those wonderful stairs. And uh, yet she was in interior design and I was in fine arts and our our paths didn't connect in class. So... Years went by, and I would read the alumni uh, publications, and I see her name because of the lecture series. And it's, I, would, I was excited to see the lecture series begin. Then I go to a dinner in Miami at Fairchild Tropical Gardens, um, David Fairchild's private home, the Kampong. And... It was a small dinner because it was celebrating the Kampong joining an international group of botanical gardens that were significant. And I was introduced to this beautiful woman in a black knitted dress. She just stood by the table. It's penny stamps. And I said, so it's Miami, and it doesn't look like an art student from Ann Arbor. Or, you know, I said, are you the Penny Stamps from Ann Arbor, Michigan School? And she said, well, I'm Penny Stamps. And we became great friends. Oh, and it was under a banyan tree. Under, the ba oh, under David Fairchild's uh, beautiful, beautiful banyan tree. It turns out in his writing about um, enchanted islands, it was a trip. The book is about 1930s, early. He describes being seduced in Java by this big banyan tree, and the sultan of a place I can't pronounce was out of town. So his wife 
took six seeds and wet blotted paper, and they kept the seeds live, and he brought them back to Miami by boat. And one was in the campong. One he gave his... I'm trying to think of how it worked. He was They were all related, the few men in Miami in the late 20s. But he gave one to the family that was either John Collins or the Pancoast. And they were developing Miami Beach. And so they planted this tree. So the tree is almost 100 years old. And um, that tree was almost, they were sister trees. I love that story. Banyans are in the air. I actually, I brought this postcard that I have in my office that's a row of banyan trees on either side of Beach Road in Hope Sound, Florida. Have you ever been there? No, but I know that um, the banyan trees, for example, that lead to Fairchild on Old Ah. Cutler Road. It's heaven. It is going through, whether it's day or night, the light, the sunshine filtering Mm -hmm. through or the the stars coming through the branches. Well, I invite you to Hope Sound sometime. Maybe we'll meet there. We'll go to a cafe. Okay. (laughs) But you, there's so many Banyan things happening in your life right now. This week, you've got news about another book that's coming down the pike. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Well, just um, this week, well... The, I spoke with the editor. I sent it to the publisher about two m- months ago, and it was the same publisher who's published my Intuitive Alphabet. Do you know that book? Yes, I love it. I don't have a physical copy, but I will be getting mine soon. Today, I was just wowed by looking at the images. M is for mask, N is for nose, and yes. it's it's a piece of coral that's making the shape, the, the nose, the... yeah. Well... Actually, that that alphabet has uh, also traveled. It's at Oxford in the library with all the old um, alphabets. And what happened was I... The actual objects themselves? No, the book. The book, okay. And they laid out on a long table the keeper of the of the alphabets, the Sumerian alphabet and the cuneiform and the hieroglyphics and now... We have the intuitive alphabet there because I met the director of the Bodleian Library. And a great place. A great place. <laughs> I was taken there because I was looking for the Cairo Geniza, and that is a, a repository of ancient texts from medieval times that was discovered uh, in the 1920s. And... Um, more and more they begin to understand what kind of document it is as they take it apart and study it. Some went to Cambridge, some were at Oxford. So I'm brought into the director's room, and I said, uh, no, because I knew one of their patrons, and what can I do for you, he said. So I said, well, I just finished this wonderful book called Sacred Trash, The Lost and Found World of the Cairo Geniza. And as I'm speaking, his face lit up. I love that book, he said. What can I do for you? So then we became buddies, and I write them when I have books that move me in that way. So great. And that's how it all unraveled. So anyway, I gave a master class there on the intuitive alphabet. Uh, right before COVID. When you were thinking, because we have so many projects of yours to talk about, Michelle, and but since we're on the intuitive alphabet now, how long was this in the works? Because it 
when I saw the the pictures online today, I just felt how feels to me like it's it's part of this this whole growth of your life work. It is and correct. It's a life, and it's the language we all we all know as as young children before we speak. We know the sh- the spiral in the shell. We know the leaf pattern. We know it's our language, and then somehow words took over, and then when words were reduced to symbols, you mm. know, it, um, well, it's come back full term, the symbols, but they're not beautiful. Mm. They're either um, from the Industrial Revolution, you know, print, and or the Disneyfication of the world, the emoji. Mm. There's no more connection to nature that, that our language used to to have and is embedded, was embedded. Right. This is part of the disconnect today. Yes. And you keep yourself as a, as a human being, as an artist, as a maker connected because it seems you, you have objects from the natural world and other objects, objects made, objects found, whether they're shells, like you said, Mm -hmm. or coral or pieces or, or things that you're materials that you're working with in the material world or, or Mm -hmm. books or, so is this something, the intuitive alphabet where you just suddenly found yourself with these objects and shapes around you? The spark was the exhibition at the Perez in 2016. So uh, the curator, Tom Collins, asked me to choose 40 works that I felt were significant. And then when I was done, he looked around the studio and he said, all this should go, but the the registrar would have a nervous breakdown. He said, can we do a shadow exhibition? Can you pack it yourself? Can we just put it out? And we did. It became two exhibitions at once, the real exhibition in the catalog and the shadow exhibition. So... Fast forward, a woman who uh, has a graphic design studio in um, Miami took her son to see the exhibition, and he looked at this installation I call Glyphs, and he said, Mom, I can read that. That's a story. So she called me up, and she said, I'm starting a publishing company, and I'd love this to be my first book when you write a story. And I said, oh, it's a great idea. I've always wanted to write, you know, bring that forward. I I can start it next year, you know, January. No, no. She said, I, I want to do it right away. So do you mind if I come and photograph this? I said, no, you know, go photograph. So I, I finally said to her, because I could feel her wind on my back. Right. And I said, what, you know, why don't you get a writer? I don't mind if you use it as an illustration. Mm-hmm. So she found a Venezuelan woman who wrote a wonderful story, but she didn't like it. So we're sitting there, and I'm looking at it, and I say, okay, you want to publish in six? This is what I can do for you. A is for animal. I took a dog shape. B is for body. <laughs> That's how it was born. This little boy was the catalyst. Wow. And then you actually, you you drew from objects around you and you started I putting drew, them together. And We had that template, the image, yeah. and I circled them. I did a call out and then I had the originals. I had had them all photographed at one point. So I sent them to her designer. I flew back to Miami. That book was created in five minutes and laid out in 20 minutes. 
And it was, I know, because that's how things, can things are. Can, yeah, things, especially if they're maybe, well, some things it's a struggle, right? There is a struggle. Yes. But sometimes when it's meant to be, it's just this really lovely, smooth, serendipitous swoosh. Yeah. Well, I'd been speaking the language since I was yes. old enough to to observe and to take it in. And so let's say the reason why it happened like that is because that was my language. And so right now I'm working on a book called Ancient Emoji. And that brings back, I want to actually create an app where children can have an alternative to the Industrial Revolution and to the disnification of the world. They can go back and look at a branching twig. And in my book, it would have been maybe a Y. I happen to use mm-hmm. a coral branching. Oh, but yeah. they could they could um, use it as a, a meet you on the corner, a cross. You know, right. I need, to, I'm looking to not only acquire on these pages undeniable symbols of faces and things that people have always seen, but try to adapt them for use for a generation that can begin to look again. That's no small thing, a generation to begin to look again. It's been, I've been working on it for, since I finished the intuitive alphabet. Mm -hmm. You know, the emojis have always annoyed me. I'm now thinking, hope I didn't email you one. <laughs> you would have been like, end it. <laughs> no, well, some of them are, aren't as bad as others, let's face it. But, yeah. you know, it's why, if, why, it's an interesting thing. It's a great idea to have something that expresses emotion. Mm. But since we need to be dealing with Mother Earth right now, we yes. need to we need a device to bring the attention back. Yes. Well, I can't wait to see this, then this project, this next one. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll pick up here. We're going to hear music, I believe, that accompanies the video of the installation that we, we talked about, A Walk on the Beach. Listen in, folks. If you've never heard a conch played before or a conch, you're about to.
welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm so glad you did. Today, Michelle Okadoner is here in the studio. I'm thrilled to be sitting in the same room with you, Michelle. Seeing oh, you be so sweet. And today on the table, there's Michelle, as if you've been listening for the first quarter of the program, you know there's there's a multitude of projects that are in the process and also being born that Michelle is always working on. Today on the table, we happen to have one of my personal favorites, Into the Mysterium, a wonderful book that you can check out a conversation that Michelle and I had in 2016 if you'd like to know more about this beautiful photo book of a project. And we also have Miami Beach Blueprint of an Eden, live scene through the prism of family and place by Michelle Okadoner and Mitchell Wolfson Jr. Maybe we could talk about this book a little bit now. The city of Miami Beach, let's say, you know, living there. And it was a new city, you know, incorporated 1915. I was born 1945. So who lives in a city that's 30 years old, you know, when right. you think about it? Right. And it was filled with vines and trees. And so it had a lot to offer in terms of the sky was visible everywhere. And we had no big buildings and mm. the weather was nice and so it was gave me a language of um, a natural world and the ability to explore. But it didn't have any cultural institutions, and neither did Miami, which was also a young city. So coming to Ann Arbor gave me the tools. And that was in Detroit, which is, you know, it's right next door, uh, was for me an awakening, the Detroit Institute of Art, which is a mini metropolitan museum, and uh, the, the library across the street, the Fisher Building, the architecture. We didn't have architecture. Well, we had Morris Lapidus, who I knew. But it, so this was a this was wonderful. And my first day going into Lorch Hall here, and the old building, the pubic tile floors, and it turns out that Dean Lorch was uh, prescient when they tore down the old Havemeyer mansion on Fifth Avenue because Art Nouveau was out and modernism came in the late 20s, early 30s. He rescued the Tiffany chandelier and the radiator covers. So I'm 17 years old. I'm coming from Miami Beach. I walk into the building, and it was just beautiful. And to think I'm not prejudiced, Lewis Mumford, our great American philosopher, in his book on essays, is not only has a photograph of Lorch Hall, oh. but he says it is the most beautiful school for architecture and design, the way the studios face um, north mm. and the light. And it, it was really an extraordinary place. And now you have one of your one of your public art installations, which is also near UMA, the University Museum of Art, is there. And could you talk a little bit about Angry Neptune, Celicia, and Strider? Oh yes, those those. Um, well, Angry Neptune was the first time I understood that's. 2007, I made it. 2008 is when it was dated, completed, where I was seeing plastic in the water. I, you know, I was an early uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
ecologist in the sense of looking and noticing, not until five years later when I read the reality of what all this meant and put it together uh, did I have the uh, scientific evidence, but the instinctive and visceral sense that we were soiling our own nest. So that's Angry Neptune. And then the other pieces also were inspired by um, Mother Earth, the forms, and they were having a conversation. Now, I can't figure out if they came way before us or whether they're coming way after us. But Oh, well, and because they're made out of bronze. Bronze. And how did you, how did you first make these? They're, um, they're creatures that are bigger than life size, mm-hmm. um, and they look like they are so of the earth and they're under some evergreen trees there off to the side and they look like they've been there forever well you know it's interesting if you've ever seen Wagner's ring cycle um, there are three Norns who are under the earth and that's a Norse um, he, he got it from the Vikings from the Norse myths. Somehow mythologically, this is embedded in us. I think that the Jungian idea of collective consciousness is true because these things, I don't think them up. I express what's there. And so how, with because these, there are other, I want to say, creatures rather than art objects. Are you saying, Michelle, that these creatures that you made and that that people can see if they're walking along outside near the art museum near Lorch that they are in some way in a response to what's happening to the earth and with climate change and well they're they're both that but I've always imagined that we weren't different let's say than the bark of a tree. In fact, I always imagined when I was young I could see a leaf for example in the mm-hmm. veins that and then I'd look at my hand and see the veins that carried the fluid to support my body. I I knew that we were them and that they weren't a separate phylum or a separate species. So this in this started this kind of idea began out of the connectedness of everything. But Angry Neptune was the first step in in expressing we're connected and look what we're we're making our ancestors angry. Mm, Because it does seem like the forms have branches and roots and, and maybe coral structures that are within part of the making of them. Well, it's interesting. I was um, just finished for the city of Miami Beach, their graphic component for the first Aspen Ideas conference that took place in Miami Beach on climate change. And I used the coral component, as you would say, because it's both a colony, but there are individual units. And I wanted to say that each one of us is an individual unit, but we need to act as a colony to protect the climate protect earth Mm. so but these are uh, there's a lot of forms that don't really have names because you want to look the whole is greater than the sum of its parts i used wax i used wood i used everything 
that would burn out. So there's no coral, really, because that's limestone. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yes. So when you do a bronze, well, you could make a mold, but if you make a mold, you lose a lot of the texture. It's like like kissing through cellophane, you know. (laughs) You still got a kiss, but it's less intense. Less you know? a kiss, yeah. yeah. Oh, so you used so you burned the materials to well, get they burn the, out when you go to cast them. Oh, right. You know, as you pour in, they have the, to burn them out, and it leaves the form inside of. It's really a very uh, laborious process. And and you, but you don't mind a foundry. Well, you know, I realized I started working in clay and I was making sculptures that the larger they became, the more fragile some of them were and cumbersome, you know. So I switched to casting bronze in the mid-80s so they wouldn't fall apart. Of course, I missed all of the uh, textures I was getting that were direct in clay, but... I learned how to work wax like clay and make it a direct burnout without a mold. How do you make sure as a as a maker, as an artist and person that you are always open and growing through cuz just hearing you you speak in this one moment about working from clay and to, you know and then the the process of and the change. Mm-hmm. The transformation, really, you as a maker and what you're pulling in. You know, it's like um, you can't, you can never enter the river at the same place. You know, the same, what does they say? You can't enter a river at, it's never the same river. You know, so it's always moving. Life is always moving. So you can't stay still. You know, you have to, when you move with it, you're traveling and mentally and visually you're moving you take in and you keep going and you respond you know and so it's a it's part of the it's a natural process mm. to um keep growing we are we do keep growing you know and you can just look at me and i haven't seen you in since 2016 so it's different i look different mm-hmm. and that's the same thing yeah, and all our cells are different, as they say, right? It's every seven years or something, we're, we're different. It seems to me that with your work, it's always, it's, I'm saying it's always changing, but it feels like there's these, these threads going through it, even in how you're open to change and changing things and maybe resisting what others might want from you, but trusting something inside yourself. If I think back to the times that I read about when you were in maybe your first exhibit in the Detroit Institute of Art, I think it was called Works in Progress. Mm-hmm. And you had you put it out on the gallery floor instead of something like at the time it was more pedestals. let's put it on a pedestal yeah. or let's put it on a wall. And yeah. Yeah, six weeks before that exhibition was to open, the museum called and said, Are you sure you want to use the floor? Because if we don't make the pedestals now, <laughs> I mean, they kept wanting, but that was the beginning of set, setting aside and returning, really. Setting aside art on a pedestal, which I felt wasn't where it belonged, and returning it to 
where we, the same realm we're in. <laughs> and if art has a sacred part, then that's the same realm we're in. We need to have what Martin Buber called an I-thou voice. So let's all be art and people and everything on the same plane. Let's not put things, objects on pedestals and leave us, you know, um, wading through the muck. Right, right. And so... So this moment where you're you're placing the pieces, which I think were um, images of writing mm-hmm. in process of drafting, maybe glyphs, yes, and a work in progress, even with that, when you think about making and revising, and and then also seeds to in different stages of germination, which is just such a beautiful idea. Not to mention it connecting back to the banyan seeds that were taken from Java. Well, Um, it's interesting. You know, I was reading in 1972, Kawabata won the um, Nobel Prize, first time a Japanese person. And they started started translating first spring snow and um, uh, uh, Thousand Cranes. That was the great book. And then Mishima. And Mishima wrote, the Tetralogy, and he had the idea of seeds of consciousness, karmic seeds. And I loved it. I underlined it in the book, which I don't often do. And I started making seeds, and the seeds were in that exhibition on the floor where they belonged. They didn't belong on a pedestal. They belonged on the ground. So that marble floor was as close to the ground as I ever got (laughs) in the museum. But, and then you keep working with this idea in your public art installations, whether it's like here on campus, what we, we were talking about Neptune and the, the creatures, or if it's the, the science benches that you created to have in a space where students could sit on them and use them. I think one's for physics. and Yes, and then, that's right. And in the Miami airport, the international airport, you, we played the song that goes with a walk on a beach. And mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the making of that? That because that's a huge, that's a huge installation. That that's um, that took many years, and it was originally about um, a little less than four thousand square feet, and um, it was an experiment. I wasn't 100% positive all those bronzes would stay in the terrazzo. Think about that. But I signed the contract, and I had done a small work, two small works, as one in Evanston Public Library, one in the Sacramento um, Library. And so nobody was calling me up complaining, so I thought I'd, I would try it on a large scale. See, you take risks, yes. you know, and... Um, then I wondered, what's going on here? It's gonna, people will walk on it. I knew the luggage would go, but then I saw them plan these concession stands, and I thought, gee, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not in a frame. Then I got the idea that the walk on the beach, always you see that foam, you know, that line, the littoral zone. And I decided... I, maybe I can sprinkle mother a pearl. Now, don't ask me how and why. And th- I wrote an, 
uh, Vivian Rodriguez, who was head of public art, and I explained I needed a framing device to separate the um, vernacular from the sacred. That's, I think, how I said it. Mm. It's something. It's just, and she said, well, what, what, how you, I don't know. I said, let me figure this out. I asked Terrazzo people, and they said, there's a man in San Francisco who has unusual aggregates. So I get his 800 number, and I call him up, and I forgot he was three hours um, difference, oh. and I woke him up in the morning. And he said, for art. I know a button factory in the Philippines, and they have scrap, and let me see if I can buy it for you. So fast forward, I had a $53,000 addendum, which was not nothing in 1993, to get tons, to buy everything. And then I didn't know if it would be ground out. That was, um, you know, when the grinder comes for the terrazzo, that you can't mix it in because it'll sink. So I had to learn how to, what the terrazzo man called bird seed it in, you know, sprinkle it. Then we were afraid it would get ground off the top, so we bought rakes. It was a real process. And so put us in the picture a little bit, Michelle. Were you... Were you there experimenting in the international airport or were you off in a studio experimenting so that you... No, I was on... Uh, no, there was no studio. Nobody... You can't... Yeah, it's a big setup. Let me yeah, say it that way. It can't be a mile. Terrazzo. Right, yeah. right. Okay. No, I held my breath. <laughs> and then he started a huge business because that sparked such interest. And now you can get mother of pearl but it's all broken up by machines and it's homogenous mm. my mother of pearl had these little it was all scrap and it was it was i can see the difference it always amuses me and then the project expanded from a concourse to a whole terminal and it kept going and, and people going are, and people are taking a, like a walk on the beach you've created this for them while they're traversing there between flights or arriving or departing and they're walking on it the art it's so interesting i don't know of another airport in the world where that floor would belong it's so miami there's something about it that is it's it has it's jazzy it has rhythm yet it's natural it everything there is a miami you find on the on the ground it's fallen out of a tree or in even like nope doesn't belong in Hawaii doesn't belong you see there's right. no place it captures a feeling and that's what that's really what the profession was is supposed to do that's what we are carrying with us from generation to generation is a respect for the materials that make us what makes us and uh in fact Zora Neale Hurston said it so well she said I have memories within that came out of the materials that went to make me time and place have had their say so that's how that floor was made and it feels also like what you're saying, Michelle, is it's a mission of how you believe, like the work of a 
an artist is a responsibility through the generations. It's always been a calling. And I think that part of why I'm, I'm interested in taking the alphabet out in the world or the taking it further, all these things, is because we are, as a culture right now, so confused. And people are, as a result, there's so much uh, depression. You can you know, pick up the paper. There's anger. There's, there's, all, there's not a lot of happy things at the moment. You know, it's so we need to, we need to take a step back and look at what we've done in every way. And, and what does it mean? You know, what, what did it cost us? And the bill is on the table right now. When you're carrying golden threads, this is the, the title of your, your talk, the event. Is this something about the work of creating and making and also the responsibility Absolutely. to keep carrying that thread yeah. through time or can you yeah how did can, talk, how did you name this and what does this mean to you you know so many people have given me so many gifts they've the the people who came and taught me came in the 30s most of them from sarin with sarinin to make cranbrook then they came to ann arbor when they were older and retired and then people like Joe Ware, they came from the Bauhaus, which came to IIT from Chicago. So Ann Arbor benefited by the diaspora from fascism. Mm. And those people were intense, and they knew what life was, and they knew how precious it was. And they, they were wonderful teachers. I had wonderful teachers. Even when I was younger, we had music teachers a couple that also fled from Vienna, and uh, she would pull our hair to get higher notes, and he played the violin, <laughs> the strivelings. I mean, I just remember the songs they taught me, I still remember. And there was a sense of community. There was a sense of passing on these ideas. We had a... We, and then my teacher, who had studied with Meyer Grotel, uh, John Stevenson, he came... To, from Cranbrook in graduate school, and then had a Fulbright to Japan. And he studied with Sotsi Hamada, who was a national treasure. So then he brought Hamada here for the 150th anniversary. We had to learn how to say it, the sesquicentennial. That's <laughs> a big word. And that was 1967, and he came for the May Festival, and he... Uh, through pots. It was just unbelievable. So what do you, you, you accept this? You know, money can't buy all this. It's not a, it's not a transactional thing. They're giving you what was handed to them. There's a great chain that's not visible right now. You know, what's visible are the brands. Mm -hmm. And it, they, they, I think a lot of this is drowning and so I want to make it visible when I speak that I'm not some special thing I didn't invent myself. I received, I start with trees 
from around me what what life was. I watched. I watched, you know, buds become flowers. I watched insects crawl and get their food and crawl back. I watched ants in a line. You know, what do children do? And then I learned, I kept it. And then I learned to think about it in materials, and I was able to do it. I was able to get an education. Somebody had to think up a university. You know, think about all this culture that right now mm-hmm. is being um, set aside for, you know, a lot of violence on on the screen. So I don't understand. I'm, I, I am bothered by the violence, and I'm trying to use what I received. You know, what do you say about the shootings in school? You know, how do you engage people? This is, so yes, there's And help a, people move past hopelessness. Yes. So it's, it's not, I'm not about to talk to anybody and never have about a career. Mm, That's, right. you know, this is not about a career. This is about, this is a, Life is a laboratory for living. And, you know, it's always, an, and it's a noble experiment. So that, and that's what was handed to me. And all these people who came from Europe because they were thrown out and their families, they could have been angry and bitter and and um, and held back, and instead they were they were an extraordinary generation, and have added so much um, intellectual and spiritual and creative capital. And Ann Arbor had a nice handful of it, a wonderful wonderful share of all these traditions, which connects to something that you said off air sometime a little while ago, Michelle, the Ann Arbor cauldron, as, yes, you, as you see it. Ann Arbor was a cauldron. And I'm, and again, it's not just my imagination. <laughs> this last book by Louis Meand, and he cites, it was in the New Yorker, I almost fell off my chair. <laughs> he cites Ann Arbor as the place where everything started. And he said um, that it then spread to Berkeley, and he then he named. I have actually, I do have it with me, but I don't remember the names. So he understood that it went from Tom Hayden in the Port Huron Manifesto. The SDS started all of this ferment, but it was peaceful. You know, I was at that first teaching. I was up all night with my professors. Really? But he writes about all of this and how it happened and how it spread. And this is so this was the beginning of the anti-war movement, which is always associated with Berkeley. And you have one of your pieces, A Death Mask, was featured on the Mich- University of Michigan avant-garde journal Generations. Yes. And they used to also, and you were a student. Then. I was a student. I was really I, I was went from Miami Beach in this idyllic life into a into a cauldron of ferment of activity and creativity and and experimentation and it was just wonderful and I had the emotional ballast to not get 
sucked down into the vortex of it, but to really dance around the edges of it and uh, capture as much of the pollen that I could personally sustain and then try to master all that I saw and learned. And that was, it's a job. People don't understand. Being a student. Being a student yes. and then taking it with you yes. and and taking it out in the world. That is, see, we've lost our mission as a country. We 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 are entertained all the time, constantly entertained. So, this is where I'm political again. I've come back to Ann Arbor to to rouse them a little bit. And um, in honor of um, of the the golden threads that were here at the school, mm-hmm. they were hardworking people. Even though they we we drank, we hung out, but it, we 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 parsed the world, you know, right. like Kurt Viles lost in the stars. You know, they went through our fingers, but we we saw them and we. We knew, you know, we were, we were, we were enthralled with the magic of living. So you carry those memories and moments with you as just as part of your, your being here in this moment, but also in your, through your hands, right? How, what you are making. Well, that's what art is. It's transformation. But we all, we're all built on other, we're all standing on other people's shoulders. None of us are just um, the greatest, you know, the invention of the, we have to get out of what's known as the Freudian era of art and go back to the Jungian, the collective consciousness, the understanding of, and Lewis Mumford in The City of History says there's two periods always. He says the Neolithic and the Paleolithic. The Neolithic is the council of elders and the grinding tools and, you know, and the Paleolithic is the solitary king and the knights and the sharp, the sharp pointed, you know, (laughs) arrows and all. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Barack Obama was a Neolithic president and then we got a Paleolithic president. Every life, art, everything is political if if in some ways if you're alive right if it's correct well michelle i can't i can't hardly believe that this time has flown by you've flown into town and then it's just been such a joy getting a chance to have this time with you and 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 share you share you with all the ears of ann arbor and beyond and frank here in the studio I can't even believe that we haven't. We've got your beautiful Miami Beach blueprint of an Eden book here. It's it's amazing. It captures it captures the essence of this place and its spirit. I think as you spoke about it in a walk on the beach, even as mm-hmm. you, about we're here. We're here now in this moment, and you're making and you've got a new children's book that is also coming out about Banyans. Why is that important? Why is that? Why do you think in right now it matters that this also this story is in the world for children and everyone about the Banyans? 
Well, I always wanted to write a book about the banyan tree and a few others around them. And I had a title. It was, it's called Ecstatic Nutrition, The Trees in My Life. But then the mayor of Miami Beach asked me to write a children's book, so I've taken a segue. And so, but I'll get to that last book in a few, you know, it, I collect for it, so it'll fall into place. So that's how the book came. The mayor asked me. And so it took me a year to organize it, do the illustrations. It was hard to visualize how the earth was breathing and the soil underneath. You know, I've never spent a day trying to create what dirt would look like flat for a child. It's was very interesting. But now you've done it. Yeah, I've done it. And we'll be able to see it. It's Everything is connected. Talking with you, it's always such a, a, a wonder because your father was the mayor of Miami Beach when you were growing up for your young adulthood, wasn't he? Yes, he was a judge before that. So I learned a lot about... Uh, I learned a lot. You know, it was, the home was very focused. We, he would come home, and at the dinner table, people ate home in those days. If they went out, it was once a week, and so family sat down. But he would go over what had happened during the day. So we grew up with a tremendous legacy of social justice. And that's that's something maybe also why public art is such a part of your life as well and part of your work. I love the WPA. I thought it was really great. Thanks so much for being here, carrying, carrying the golden thread. Thanks to Frank Uli for engineering. Michelle, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. It's always so nice to see you, and you're so insightful. So it's a pleasure to share with you. I can't wait till the next time. Um, until then, I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening, everyone. Canta tu rumba, canta tu sol.
medical care? Do you need health insurance? The Corner Health Center is the place for you. The Corner offers judgment-free, high-quality health care exclusively to all who are age 12 to 25. They provide health care regardless of insurance status or ability to pay and will assist you in obtaining health insurance. Services include, but are not limited to, physicals, vaccinations, mental health programs and counseling, sexual health and contraceptive services, OBGYN, diet and nutritional support, and LGBTQ hormone therapy. The Corner is here for you. For more information or to schedule an appointment, call 734-484-3600 or visit cornerhealth.org. listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You are tuned into Drum Break. I'm your host DJ Free Jazz. For the next half hour, I'm going to be spinning some intelligent DMB jungle. Whatever, we'll keep it chill. Stay tuned. <laughs> 